In God We Trust is the official motto of the United States. It was adopted by the United States Congress in 1956, replacing E Pluribus, Pluribus Unum, which had been the de facto motto, motto since uh, 1977 in the design of the Great Seal of the United States. While the earliest mentions of the phrase can be found in the mid-18th century, the origins of the phrase as a political motto lie in the American Civil War, where Union supporters wanted to emphasize their attachment to God to boost morale. The capitalized form, In God We Trust, first appeared on the two-cent piece in 1864, but it was not printed on paper currency until 1957. The model remains popular among the American public, according to a 2003 joint poll by USA Today, CNN, and Gallup. 90% of Americans support the inscription, In God We Trust, on U.S. coins. And a 2019 student poll by College Pulse showed 53% of students supported the inclusion in currency. While the phrase, In God We Trust, is the official motto of the United States and still largely remains popular among Americans, the question must be asked, do we really trust in God? We should also ask, what does it look like to trust in God? And we should also ask, why do we need to trust in God? We're going to look at a passage now that will hopefully answer these questions. Open your Bible to Isaiah 8. It should be on page 522. And your pew Bible, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'll read the whole chapter, but we're just going to talk about parts of it tonight. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jerichina. And so I approached the prophetess. She conceived, gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remelia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong, abundant waters of the Euphrates River, that is, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep onto Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach as far as the neck and spread of its wings will fill the expanse of your land, Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. And listen, all remote places of the earth. Get ready, yet be shattered. Get ready, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will fail. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For so the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the ways of this people, saying, You are not to say it's a conspiracy regarding everything this people calls a conspiracy. And you're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary both to the houses of Israel. He will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will eagerly wait for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should they not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak in accordance with this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land dejected and hungry, and it will turn out. When they are hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. They'll be driven away into darkness. The title of the message is In God We Trust. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and devotion. We come tonight with a desire to truly trust you, Lord, not to just say that, not to just let it be a, a word we say, but a lifestyle we live. Open your word up to us tonight. Let it speak to us in the ways we need it to speak to us. Father, we may need encouraging. We may need strengthening. We need challenging. We may need convicting. We just may need to be comforted through your word as we're reminded of the fact you are the living God who is here and who is present and is at work in our lives today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts and lives. We ask in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now notice in verse 1, Isaiah was to write this message in ordinary letters in my Bible. This means the message was meant to be understood by everyone. This wasn't a secret message. This was meant to be told and understood by everyone who would ever read it. Also, we notice in verses 1, 3, 5, and 11 the repetition of the Lord said or the Lord spoke. Uh, we have What we have in Isaiah 8 is a message from God we're all meant to understand and apply. We come to it with that idea. This is truly the message from God. This wasn't just Isaiah's idea. This is something. It's not a hidden message. It is a clear message we're meant to take, understand, and apply to our lives. Now, in the first four verses, we see Isaiah is going to have a son with a unique name. This son is in some ways a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 16, where the virgin would conceive, give birth to a son, call him Emmanuel. This son, before he would eat curds and honey, the time he knew enough to refuse evil and good, the, the land and the peoples whom King Ahaz feared, Samaria and Israel, or Samaria and Syria, would be destroyed. In a similar way, Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, is a prophetic sign similar to what was prophesied. Before this boy is old enough to say, My father or my mother, um, Samaria and Syria will both be conquered by Assyria. Uh, this is both a fulfillment of God's prophecy in chapter 7, verses 15 through 16, and it is a fulfillment of the Assyrian agreement with Judah, according to 2 Kings 16 through 9. Right, So, the agreement was that Assyria would yoke up with Judah. They would be their, sort of their big brother on the block that would protect them. And then they would take out Syria and Samaria so that Israel or that Judah would not have to worry about it. But Judah, we're going to find out, is going to find out that Assyria will not be the savior they appear to be. In verses 5 through 8, Assyria will eventually turn on Judah. Now this turning on Judah is not going to be a surprise to God. This is a fulfillment of God's prophecy. He spoke in Isaiah 7, verses 17 through 25. It is also an act of judgment on the people of Judah. Now we would wonder, why would God bring such a judgment on His own people? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 6. Verse 6, these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Right? What this means is they had trusted Assyria and not God. Ahaz was afraid of Syria and he was afraid of Samaria and their desire to conquer him and put in a puppet king. God told him their plan would not stand and what he needed to do was just trust God. That was it. Just trust me and I will ensure it does not come to pass. This is what God told him. 
Ahaz, however, rejected God's word and he chose instead to make this this treaty with Assyria and trust in them to deliver him and not in God. Also, in verse six, we see that they had rejoiced in Rezin, the son of Remelia. Now, Rezin was the king of Syria. Now, they had not rejoiced in Rezin as in loved him or found security in him. Rather, they had rejoiced in the misery Syria was enduring because of the Assyrian victory over them. Rejoicing in their defeat and their misery is contrary to what God had said in the book of Proverbs. God has said, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see, the Lord will be displeased, and he will turn his anger away from him. Also, part of their rejoicing in resin was due to Ahaz's plan working. Ahaz's plan was to not do what God said. But to make a treaty with the Assyrians, let them defeat Samaria and Assyria and then be yoked up with the biggest team in the in the area. And Hazah, it seemed to have worked. And so they rejoiced in Rezin's defeat. Now, the problem with this, as we've discussed, is God told Ahaz not to make this plan. The wording here of rejoicing in Rezin seems to me to carry with it a sense of gloating. You can just almost hear Ahaz saying, see, I didn't need God to take care of this. I didn't have to to take, worry about God. I was able to figure it out and resolve it for myself. The human heart is always looking for ways to solve their own problems without trusting in God. Since Judah had trusted in Assyria, not God, God was going to turn Assyria against Judah. Judah or Assyria would come to Judah and conquer it. According to verses 7 and 8, they would totally conquer it. They would sweep over Judah, overflow the banks. Basically, it pictures just a complete conquering of the nation of Judah by the Assyrians. Judah would learn God's warnings about trust me and don't do this were serious. They would also learn the folly of trusting in something or someone other than God. Then what we see in verse 9 and 10 is interesting. This speaks of God bringing judgment on Assyria. Sure, God was going to use Assyria and he was going to use them to punish proud Judah. But Assyria is not getting away with their own wickedness. God was going to bring punishment on them as well. They would be shattered despite their best plans, despite their best efforts. They, would, they could not stop God from bringing his judgment upon them. Now, after telling Isaiah what he is about to do in verses 1 through 10, the Lord turns to Isaiah specifically with a particular message for Isaiah. Since everything in verses 1 through 10 is true, Isaiah is in essence to trust God and so remain faithful to God. Now, the order of this is important. Judah, because of Ahaz, had not trusted in God. Since they had not trusted in God, they had not remained faithful to God and they were suffering because of their lack of faithfulness and their lack of trust. Isaiah, if he wants to avoid what happened in verses 1 through 10 happening to him, then what he must do is trust God in the midst of all that's about to happen. And if he trusts the Lord, he will then begin and be able to remain faithful to God until the end. God's message to Isaiah then is his message to us today. We must trust God To remain faithful to God. Like Isaiah, we live in a culture which has chosen not to trust God. And the lack of trust in God is seen in the perpetual unfaithfulness to God. If we are going to remain faithful to God, in God we trust must be more than a phrase on our money. It must be the way we live our lives. This passage shows us three ways 
We must trust God so we will, re- so we will remain faithful to God. Uh, we only have time to look at one of them tonight. right? So when we trust God, we listen to God. When we trust God, we listen to God. As we've seen, God has spoken and God is speaking. And verse 11 begins with the Lord spoke. God has spoken. God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Are we trusting? Now, trusting God and listening to God are are more than just hearing the word of God. Trusting God and listening to God is hearing and heeding the word of God. And and what God says to Isaiah in this passage, and we're going to kind of jump around throughout these last few verses um, for more of a topical way. But what God is is telling Isaiah to do is, is listen to me and do what I say. Right. Hear what I say and heed what I say. So God has said we must hear and heed. And there's just a few things that God has said we must hear and heed in this passage. First, uh, to hear and heed, we must not walk in the ways of the people. Don't walk in the ways of the people. This is what God says in verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of the people. Now, the people of Judah were walking in a way that was not trusting in God. They were conforming the world around them. They were making uh, all kinds of treaties with Assyria and the false nations. They were embracing false gods. When when Ahaz went and yoked up with Assyria, he found a, a way he liked to worship their God. He brought back an altar. He put it in the house of God and they began to worship God in ways that were wrong. And so what God is telling Isaiah is... Don't do that. Don't follow after their way. Sure, everyone else is walking in these ways. Everyone else is doing these things. Everyone else is saying it's okay, but you must not do that. You must not walk in the ways of the people. Now, when you read God's word, you find God always intended for his people to live differently from the world around him. Right? The people who are not God's people. Uh, his people were not to emulate them in any way. I, I'm reading in the Old Testament in my Bible reading in Deuteronomy right now. And repeatedly, in like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God constantly says, don't try to find out how they worship their God and try to bring that in. Let that go. Knock down their altars, knock down their pillars and have nothing to do with it. Don't live the way they live because I, the Lord, your God, am a holy God. And over and over and over again, God intended in the Old Testament for his people to live differently from those who were not his people. This difference would be seen in their values, their priorities, their attitudes, their actions, their reactions, their morality, their preferences, their hopes, their dreams, their plans, their use of time, their use of their talents, their use of their treasure. It encompassed all of life. It wasn't just that on Saturdays they went to the temple and offered sacrifices. It was all of their life was meant to be different to demonstrate they were devoted to Yahweh and not the gods of the land. This isn't just what God intended for those who lived in Old Testament times. This is also what God intends for those of us who are disciples of Jesus today. Familiar passage in the book of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what... The will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. This familiar passage shows us those who are disciples of Jesus are meant to be different from those who are not disciples of Jesus. Now, there's loads of ideas about what it means not to be conformed to this world. But I like what the message paraphrase, how it words that particular phrase. 
Do not become so well adjusted to your culture, you fit into it without even thinking. Now, the first sentence of this paraphrase is the best concise explanation of being conformed to the world I've ever read. Being conformed to the world is being so well adjusted to the unbelieving culture around us. We fit into the unbelieving culture around us without even really giving it any sort of thought. Have you ever really sat down with God's word? And look at what it says about the kind of values we're supposed to have as disciples of Jesus. Or the kind of priorities we're supposed to have as disciples of Jesus. Or the kind of attitudes we're supposed to have as disciples of Jesus. Or the kind of actions we're supposed to take as disciples of Jesus. Or how we're supposed to react to stressors and difficult people as disciples of Jesus. The kind of morality we're supposed to have as disciples of Jesus. How we handle our own personal preferences as disciples of Jesus. The kind of hopes, dreams, and plans we have as disciples of Jesus. The way we use our time as disciples of Jesus. The way we use our talents as disciples of Jesus. The way we're supposed to use our treasure as disciples of Jesus. Have you ever sat down and seen what God's Word has to say about all of those things and then compared it? To what we actually do. I mean, is it possible we have bought into a form of cultural Christianity where we fit into our culture without even really thinking about it? It's not that we have rejected God like the people of Judah. It's that we have so conformed And so fit in, it never even crosses our mind that something we're doing or believing or a way we're acting might be wrong. And when we read in God's word something that seems so radically different from what from what we do, we just think that that can't be right. That can't really be how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do, because that's just weird. And is it possible that we have rather than we've got it mastered, that we just fit in so well, it just never even crosses our mind that something might need to change. And and if so, if if that's the case, we have become so well adjusted, what do we do about it? Well, again, I like the message paraphrased. Instead of becoming that well adjusted, fix your attention on God. Have our minds Renewed and will be changed from the inside out. Essentially what that boils down to is we need to trust God and we need to listen to God. God has spoken on all of those areas. God has spoken about how we're supposed to live in all of these ways. The question isn't God is silent. The question isn't God is hiding it. The problem is, if there's a problem, the problem is we're not hearing and heeding. We cannot remain faithful to God while living like the unbelieving culture around us. We are not faithful to God if we are so well adjusted to our culture we fit in without even thinking about it. We must trust God if we're going to remain faithful to God. And if we trust God, we must listen to God And not live like the unbelieving world around us. Another part of listening to God is to refuse to seek worldly counsel. 
Look at verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who often whisper and mutter. Should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? The people of Judah were looked, rather than looking to God for what decisions they needed to make, they looked to false prophets. They looked to spiritists. They looked to what we might call the new age or the occult or astrology to guide them. All of which God had repeatedly forbidden them from doing. God is not, again, God is not silent or unclear about his view of false prophets, spiritists, the new age, the occult, or astrology. God has repeatedly said his people are not to take part in any of that. And again, God says to these people, to Isaiah, who's in the midst of a people who are doing this, no, no. Those who serve the living God must not seek counsel from the wicked, the dead, or the demonic. Now, you know, we all have a variety of influences in our life. We're influenced by our spouse. We're influenced by our our parents. We're influenced by our teachers. We're influenced by friends and co-workers, by the music we listen to. TV shows, the movies we watch, we're influenced by the news we watch and read. All of this is what would fall, this influence is what would fall under counsel, right? And the reality is there is, there is virtually nothing in our lives that is not trying to influence us in one way or another. Tonight, I am trying to influence you, trying to influence us to live according to the way God says. That, that's the point of what I'm doing. When we go home tonight and we turn on a TV show, whether we watch the news or whether we watch some sort of sitcom or a drama, it has a worldview. And it is trying to convince us their worldview is right. The news is all shifted. It's all skewed in one way or another. And they are trying to convince us they're right and the other team is wrong. Everything in our life is constantly trying to counsel us. Constantly trying to... To influence us. And God's word repeatedly tells us to be careful about who or what we let influence us, where we seek our counsel. In fact, the great thing about God's word is it not only tells us to be careful, it tells us why we must be careful. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the person who has not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates on day and night. I love Psalm 1, and I love how it begins. Don't, blessed is the person who does not do this. And what he's, of course, what He's trying to do is say, don't do this, but He doesn't just come out and say, don't be wicked, don't be a sinner, and don't be a scoffer. Instead, what He's trying to do is to get us to think about the character of those who are influencing us. He also wants us to think about the power this influence has. And essentially what he's saying is, don't be influenced by the wicked, because that will lead you to sin. And that will lead you to being a scoffer. Right? If you're influenced by the wicked, you'll take part in their activities 
And eventually, if you take part in their activities long enough, you'll adopt their mindset and their attitudes as well. Now, as I understand it, wicked as it's used here simply means someone, in our case, we would say someone who isn't a disciple of Jesus. It meant someone who was unfaithful to Yahweh. But notice the progression. First, there is walking in the counsel of the wicked. Then there is standing in the path of sinners. And then there is sitting in the seat of the scoffers. Right? Think of it like this. You don't in the sanctuary long if you just walk in one door and out the other. You're in the sanctuary a little bit longer if you stop and stand still to see what's going on. But if you come in and you sit down, you're pretty much all in. And that's kind of the picture being painted here. There's twofold idea in Psalm 1 and 1. First, there is a progression in the people who are influencing us. There are the wicked, those who are not disciples of Jesus. Then you have the sinner, which is someone who's not only not a disciple of Jesus, but is actively involved in sinful activities. Then it progresses to the scoffer, who is not only not a disciple of Jesus, not only someone who is living actively in sin, this is someone who mocks the idea of living for Jesus. And the progression in Psalm 1-1 is one leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. Those who walk in the counsel of the wicked will eventually take part in their sinful activities. And those who continually take part in their sinful activities will eventually adopt the attitude of the scoffers. One leads to the next, which leads to the next. Second picture in this passage is a progression of our participation. First, again, we're influenced by those who aren't disciples of Jesus on how to influ- on how to live our lives. If we do this long enough, we take their counsel long enough, we eventually start taking part in their activities, their sinful activities. And if we take part of their sinful activities long enough, we'll adopt their mindset, their morals, and their lifestyle. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. The person who walks in the counsel of the wicked will eventually stand around in the path of sinners. The person who stands around the path of sinners taking counsel of the wicked will eventually sit down and join in with the scoffers. So who are we letting influence us? Again, everything is trying. What is the the character of the news media we're consuming? What is the character of the musicians we're listening to? What is the character of the, the books we're reading, the author of the books we're reading? What is the character of the actors and the writers and the shows we're watching? What are they influ- What are they trying to influence us for? What are they trying to influence us to embrace? What are they trying to influence us to do? Because make no mistake, every single one of them is trying to influence us in one way or another. And if we take their counsel and they're wicked, we will eventually take part in their actions. And the longer we take part in their actions, the more likely we are to adopt their scoffing mindset. We must trust God if we're going to be faithful to God. And if we trust God, we must listen to God and reject the worldly counsel of the wicked. And then the final one for tonight 
we must recommit ourselves to God's word. If we listen to God, we must recommit ourselves to God's word. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Isaiah reaffirmed his commitment to God and his trust in God by binding the testimony and sealing the law among his disciples. This seems to indicate three actions that would be taken. One, these disciples would keep and protect God's word. Isaiah was going to write down what God said to him and give it to them. They would protect it to ensure it wasn't destroyed, which was a legitimate issue. Um, Later on, Isaiah will write things down. People will take it to the king. The king will read it, take a pen knife, cut it, and throw it into a fire. It will be destroyed. So they're protecting it to keep it from being lost. Second, Isaiah would record and teach God's word. Isaiah would not only write down what God had said and give it to his disciples, give them physical copies of God's word, he would also teach it to them. Part of the idea of sealing up God's word is sealing it up in their hearts as he taught it to them. Right? This wasn't going to be something they would take and then they would hide and they would just keep it protected. They would take it, they would learn it, they would live it, they would take it in their heart as the Psalm 119 says, so they would not sin against their God. And then thirdly, Isaiah and his disciples would live according to God's word. Having God's word only benefited them. They took it and put it into practice. King Ahaz had God's word to him. It was given to him in chapter 7. But it did him no good because he refused to take it and apply it to his life. They would apply it and they would live it even in the midst of a crooked and perverse people. Now look down at verse 20. To the law and the testimony. They do not speak according to this word because they have no dawn. Now, really, verse 20 is a continuation of what we saw in verse 19. But I wanted to put it here uh, because of the way it worked out with this. The wording, rather than seek the worldly counsel, they were to, to look to the law and to the testimony. They were to look to God's word. Right? So they would reject the worldly counsel. Instead, they would seek the word of God for what they were supposed to do. Now, the wording to the law and to the testimony brings to my mind of someone saying, what does God's word say? This picture is, at least in my mind, again, I think this is accurate, but them saying, well, the, the medium said we should do this. What does God say in this word? Right. Well, the, the spiritists we were covering, they, they said this. But what does God say in his word? Well, this Assyrian friend I have who worships whatever God the Assyrians worship, he said we should do this. Yeah, but but what did God say in his word? That's the picture, verse 20, of what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying to Isaiah he is supposed to do. So uh, picture someone who offers worldly advice, and then the first response is, what does God's word say? It also pictures with this the idea that if you would say, well, what did God's word say about it? And everybody was just say, I don't know. And the answer to that would be to the Word, to the law, to the testimonies. Let's let's go to the Word and find the answer. This is what Isaiah is being told by God he is supposed to do to recommit himself to God's Word and to be sure it is the foundation of his life and he is not allowing these worldly influencers. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the worldly influencers are saying what he wants to hear. It doesn't matter if they're saying what makes him feel good. It doesn't matter if it confirms all of his biases and ideas. What matters most is what does the word of God say. And one of the reasons I wanted to to move verse 20 
separate from verse 19 and bring it here is because of the connection I see in verse Psalm, Psalm verses 1 and 2. So blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's verse 1. But, but, contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So, we don't have time to talk about the blessing. But notice that there's a definite idea. We're not to take the counsel of the wicked and end up going in their path and sitting in their seats. Rather, what we're to do is delight in the law of God and to meditate upon it. To delight in the law of the Lord is to, to find great pleasure or satisfaction in God's word. To meditate on God's word is to think about it or to think on it continually. One of my commentaries said meditate is a very figurative word. And it pictures a cow chewing her cud. Now, I'm not much of a rancher or a farmer in any way. But from what I understand, the way a cow chews her cud is she chews, swallows, regurgitates it back up, chews some more, swallows it, regurgitates it back up, chews some more, and just does this over and over I don't know how many times. Now, it's kind of a gross image. It's still a good image of what it means to meditate on God's Word. Right? When we're meditating on God's Word, we're pondering it over and over in our minds. We're thinking about it to try to get all we can out of what we've read or what we've seen. And we get the full meaning. And the, and the idea in Psalm 2 is it's something we're doing, or Psalm 1 verse 2 is we're doing it day and night, just kind of constantly thinking about it. Now, the reason I like the image of the cow chewing its cud is because no one can just set and think on God's Word all day and do nothing else. We have stuff to do, right? And so the, the way we see it like chewing the cud is we, we have a verse or a passage or a, a story in our mind and we're thinking on it. And then the phone rings. Well, we answer the phone. And at that point, we're no longer thinking about the story, the passage of the verse. So we answer the phone. We have that conversation. We hang up. Go on about our day. Later, we, we bring it back up again. We go over it over again in our mind. But then something else comes up. Something we have to do. Somebody knocks on the door. So we have to take it down. We go have that conversation. Do what we're supposed to do. And then later when we're through with that, we, we bring it back up again. And that's the picture of meditating. Is no one, that would be great if that's all we did was just sit and listen to hymn music on the harp hymn music and meditated on God's Word. We would be truly holy people if we could do that 24 hours a day and 7 days a week. But we can't. So meditating on it is we have it, we think on it, something comes up, we've got to take care of that, we take it down, we do what we've got to do, then when we're through doing that, we bring it back up, think about it some more. And we do this over and over through our day. This is the picture of meditating upon God's Word. Now, delighting in God's Word and meditating on God's Word both picture a commitment to God's Word. Right? I mean, anyone can, can have the Bible. That's not necessarily a commitment to it. That's not delighting in it. People can even know the Bible. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's a commitment to it, a delight in it. I know at least one theologian who's actually an agnostic. He had been an evangelical believer. He abandoned his faith in Christ. Is now an agnostic. But he knows the Bible far better than most average people. He, I mean, that's literally all he does is teach the Bible and why it's wrong. So he knows it very, very well. He does not delight in God's Word at all. He is not committed to God's Word at all. Delighting in God's Word is a show of commitment. The same with meditating upon it. It, it is one thing to, to have it, 
And it's one thing to, to read it and then to put it up and be done with it for the day, but to, to think on it, to meditate upon it, to, to keep it in our mind, in the, at least in the back of our mind somewhat always, it is very much a commitment to the Word. And, and in our day, we, we need a commitment to God's Word. We need the kind of commitment the Apostle Paul talked about when he said we must be diligent to present ourselves Approve to God as workers who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We are to be diligent workers regarding God's word, so we will not be ashamed of our understanding of what it means and how it applies. We are to be diligent workers regarding God's word so we can accurately understand God's word for ourselves and explain it to others. Essentially, we should all be diligent to understand the word well enough to explain the hope that is within us. Why do I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins? Why do I believe Jesus rose again? Why do I believe salvation is found in Christ alone? Why do I believe people must repent of their sins and believe in Jesus? Why do I believe there are right lifestyles and ways to live and wrong lifestyles and ways to live? It's not enough. It's not enough to just say that's what I've always been taught. It's not enough to give sort of cliche answers. We need to be able to dig into the word and say, I believe it because of here's what it says right here. Now, it has always been important for God's people to know God's word. But I truly believe we are in a time in which we will be led astray if we aren't diligent workers regarding God's word. Our culture is not unlike that of Isaiah's day. Isaiah's day, as we saw in, what was it, chapter 5, where people call evil good and good evil, substitute light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That, that is the world in which we live. We, we currently live in a world in which trying to stop an abortion is evil, but murdering your child is a good thing. We live in a world where what is good according to God's word is evil in the culture. And what is good according to God's word is evil in the culture. And we have to know why that's not the case. Because not only is the, the unbelieving, ungodly culture saying that, but make no mistake, there are false prophets saying that as well. For every evil the culture calls good, and for every Good, the culture calls evil. There is someone with a degree from a seminary somewhere standing up and using God's word and saying why God's word is wrong and culture is right. And just because we sincerely believe them and just because they deceived us will not save us in the day of wrath. We must know God's word. We are in a time in which every false prophet in the world can have a voice that reaches through the nations through social media. We are in a time in which our culture is largely post-Christian and often what passes for Christian is little more than the counsel of the wicked. A second-hand understanding of God's Word will no longer help us. It will no longer sustain us. Because the culture is not even remotely on our side. And they do not respect our beliefs 
And they will not respect our convictions. They will do everything they can to beat us down, to break us down, to say, hath God said, are you sure that's right? Couldn't it mean this? And if we are not diligent workers who are committed to the word of God, we will not know how to answer and we will be led astray. We must recommit ourselves to God's word. Lest you think I'm exaggerating about the need to commit ourselves to God's word. Look at the last of verse 20. They do not speak in accordance with this word. What word? To the law and the testimony. It is because in my Bible it says they have no dawn. Some say because they have no light. So think about what he's saying. If someone does not speak in accordance with this word. They don't say what does the Bible say? What does God's word say? There's a reason they say that. It's because they have no light in them. Now, if you're here on a Wednesday night, I'm sure you're familiar with the contrast between light and darkness in God's word. Light representing purity, holiness, Jesus and salvation. Dark representing impurity, sin, Satan and lostness. What then does it mean that those who don't want to seek counsel from God's word have no light in them? Surely, it means they do not know Jesus. Surely, it means they are not saved. Those who reject the counsel of the word of God do so because they have rejected the God of the word. When someone does not care what God's word says about an issue, that says much about their soul their spirit, and their salvation. And if we are not diligent students, workers in the word, they will turn us from that as well. Their pragmatic advice will seem to work. It will feed our preferences It will speak to what we all our flesh already wants to do. It will be accepted by the culture. And hey, Dr. Joe Smith agrees with it and has written a theological paper about it. I guess it's okay. I'll go along that way as well. We must recommit ourselves to God's word. Truly, I believe Our commitment to God's word is going to be a huge part of what sustains us in the days to come, which I do feel will be difficult. In God we trust. It's our nation's motto. It's on our money. But is it in our hearts? Does it show in our lives? Does the way we hear and heed what God has said Show we do indeed trust our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We thank you, Lord, you have spoken. And you have spoken clearly. The question is for us. Do we trust you enough to hear and heed? Stir that within us, O God. 
Make us to be a people who delight in your word, who meditate upon it, who are diligent workers regarding your word. Thankful for our church, the commitment we've always had to your word. Let it stay this way. If anything, let it grow. Let us be a people of the book who are built upon the word so that when the storms and the floods and the winds come, we will stand firm as Jesus said. We love you, Lord. Have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.